Rusty Quill presents. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, you probably know about the Patreon, patreon.com slash woe underscore begone, where you can get early access, instrumentals, cat clips, Q&As, director's commentary, and more. But did you know that there's a subreddit slash r slash woebegone? There's also a Twitter at woebegonepod and a Discord, link in description. You never have to stop talking or thinking about woebegone. Speaking of Patreon, though, many thanks to my 10 newest patrons, Byron, Astrid, Mac McCure, Ariel Diaz, Theo, Song Kim, Jeremy Clotier, Bertie Archer, Moth's Teeth, and August Fairies for supporting the show. Enjoy. Home. A place that I had not considered home until it was ripped away from me. I've felt adrift for most of my adult life. I had an apartment when I started Wobegon, but it didn't mean anything to me. I wouldn't feel any loss upon leaving it behind. I left it behind without much consideration as soon as it became convenient. My sentimental nature wasn't pronounced enough to call it home. Old Brush Valley didn't feel like home either. It was always somewhere that I was going to be temporarily. It was a place with a room that I could sleep in between shifts. It was the avenue for my curiosities. It was a backdrop for meeting my boyfriend, for exploring the unknown, for being ripped apart by man and beast alike, for giving in to my most depraved emotions. It didn't feel like home until I couldn't go home anymore. I thought that I was going back to the compound. I assumed that they had tracked me down and were reclaiming what was theirs, a test subject that they were prepared to tinker with as the next part of Wobegon played out. The mics in Riga told me that I was about to be free, but I didn't trust them. They knew that they were free, but they didn't know everything. I felt like I didn't know anything. I was totally at the whims of complicated people making complicated decisions in a complicated system. I didn't feel as though I would have everything figured out by the time that I became them, first one, then the other, Mike and then Michael, over the course of what appeared to be about ten years. There were aspects to them that I couldn't imagine the progression of, couldn't see myself in the situations that would produce them, Michael especially. It would be preposterous to say that anything about my recent experiences gave me hope, but that is what I am about to say. I felt hope looking at the two of them. There was some continuation of Mike Walters going years into the future. Those iterations had their own eccentricities, but they seemed like they had reached a peace that I had never experienced. There was a light in their eyes that wasn't there for me. They had energy. They had control of the situation, at least until they didn't anymore and I was whisked away without warning. But the nuts and bolts of the mission went off without a hitch, even though we were unexpectedly attacked on the way there. They had the ability to help me. They took charge quickly and confidently. They knew how to shoot a gun. They told me that Edgar was safe. 
Michael had a gold band on the ring finger of his left hand. It looked natural, like it belonged there. I laid in my bed and looked up at the ceiling. There would be chores to do, questions to answer, but it was late and the world was asleep. I checked the time on my phone. It was well after midnight on the night that I left to stay with Matt, the night that my misguided, animalistic desire to flee transformed into an all-consuming need to flee, a need so severe that I was willing to kill for it, and that killing in turn fed the need. It was too late to stop me. I was already past the gate, on the road, howling at Matt on the phone and driving for 26 straight hours to Vancouver to try and dissolve into nothingness in his guest room. I was going to be there relatively soon. It was all going to happen. The Flinchites were going to pick up that mic, likely regardless of anything that I did to warn him, producing me as the end result. Whoever sent me back to that day was not giving me a second chance. If anything, they were rubbing my nose in it. This meant that my time at Old Brush Valley was roughly contiguous. I hadn't been gone long enough for anyone to notice. I didn't know what became of Hunter after I left. Over didn't try to track me down. They would have found me. It appeared to be quietly covered up. I could go back to work. I could go back to normal as though I hadn't watched the life leave his eyes, as if I hadn't just spent months being put through the ringer. I could show up for breakfast in the morning and see everyone. I could show up for my patrol without anyone asking me where I had been. I could see Edgar. Edgar. He hadn't received the message yet. It was a ruse on top of a ruse. They told me to record a fake message to him, giving him instructions that would lead the runners of Wobegon into a trap inside of Over. The Flinchites were tricking them. We called them Arbiters because the Enforcer of the Fourth Challenge called himself an Arbiter of Access. But the Flinchites were tricking me as well. They did send the message. Michael told me that the operation landed Edgar in the hospital. The Flinchites, of course, would not tell me what happened while I was in the compound. Ty shrugged in his polite and professional way and explained that those details could not be disclosed to me. But that message hadn't arrived yet. Surely it couldn't have its intended effect if I were to intercept it and warn him. Whoever returned me wasn't the Flinchites. I was going to ruin their entire plan. I was going to make sure that when I became Michael that I wouldn't have that story to tell. That would be the first order of business in the morning. Edgar was asleep. I took solace in that. He was asleep and he had no idea that anything had happened. He would never have to know. He would never have to worry about it, about me. I could endure the grief of those months of separation for the both of us, and I would be happy to do so. Over. Wobegon. Flinchites. Hunters. Arbiters, Flinch, Ryan, Anne, Marissa, The Bear, Old Brush Valley. I wonder what it is about that place.
I knocked on Edgar's door at 6.37 a.m. in zero seconds. Edgar set his alarm for 6.30 a.m., even on days that he didn't work. He kept a much more orderly schedule than I did. He would try to keep me on some semblance of a schedule on the nights and mornings that we spent together, but that was usually a wash. I'm one to lay around until noon unless there's something to get out of bed about, which these days usually meant seeing Edgar or committing murder. 6.37 was enough time for him to get up and put on the coffee. He got in the shower at 6.45 every morning. I was hoping to intercept him before then, but not so early that my knock would wake him up. I knew that it took exactly 11 minutes and 4 seconds to walk to his cabin, if I walked at my normal pace. Because of the circumstances, I got there 36 seconds early, and then proceeded to wait nervously on his doorstep for those 36 seconds, in anticipation of knocking on it. I had been awake since 3.45am, not being able to sleep due to thinking and rethinking and ultimately overthinking about showing up at Edgar's door as soon as it made sense to in the morning. I am terrible at waiting in the best of times. The time in between getting ready and leaving is torturous to me. Watching the sunrise that morning was some of the most hellish waiting that I had ever endured. To say that I was anxious to see him again is a terrible understatement. I was shaking violently enough that it was difficult to actually knock on the door. I had no reason to believe that he wasn't in there, but I had learned to fear the worst. I even peeked in his window before I knocked, though I didn't see him. My teeth were chattering, even though it was a warm morning. It was still the end of summer, which is something that I hadn't considered until I walked out the door in a flannel shirt. It had been winter when I finally made it out of Cannonball's house. It was freezing cold in Riga. I had severely overdressed. I imagined that I would have been sweating on the threshold of Edgar's door, regardless of what I was wearing. I knocked and then waited a full calendar year for Edgar to answer, which my watch approximated as about 16 seconds. He opened the door nonchalantly, not in any hurry, and smiled, surprised to see me. I was struck by how beautiful he was and how effortlessly he was beautiful. Even opening the door, I could feel the grace in his movement. His kindness was externalized on his face in a way that I can't quite pinpoint. He looked at ease with himself and with the world. Mikey, he said, relaxed as ever. You're up early. Did you tell me that you were coming? Hey, Edgar. No, no, I didn't tell you that I was coming. I was just I was in the neighborhood and I knew that you were already awake. I choked out. So much for being cool and not letting him know that something had happened. I could tell from the moment that I saw him that I wasn't going to be able to hold back my emotions. I am not well regarded for showing emotional restraint, and it had been over four months from my perspective since I had seen him. Edgar's surprised smile turned into a look of concern as I stood there trying not to weep on his doorstep. His expression ultimately settled as the concerned look that someone gets when they know generally what genre of thing has gone wrong but have been kept too far in the dark to understand exactly what it was. He ushered me in, quickly but gently, putting his hands on my shoulders. I winced, being protective of my back after all it had endured, only figuring out that he was taking my coat when he had gotten it mostly off of me. I could feel the heat in my face. I thought that I must have looked quite alarming when he answered the door. He sat me down on the couch and situated himself close to me. Is this what I think it is? He asked. Probably, I said. Mikey boy, he said. You can't keep doing this. I worry every night that I'm going to find you dead the next day. You, you wouldn't. Whoever kills me will probably hide the corpse, I said. Stop, he chided me. I was calming down in his presence. I snuggled up closer to him on the couch. I wasn't really in the neighborhood, I said. I know, Edgar said, but I'm glad you're here. He paused to look at me. Have you been up all night? You look awful, I cut him off. What? No, you look tired. Edgar said. He was quiet for a moment again. Is your... 
Is your hair longer than it was yesterday? Like a lot longer? My hair grows fast, I replied. Yeah, and this is how many days worth of growth exactly? He asked. A mm, hundred and forty, I said. Mikey, Mikey, Mikey. And you're never going to tell me what happened. I know that look. That look means I'll never get the story out of you. Oh my god, Mikey, he said. He was right. Well, there is one thing that we do need to talk about, I said. I was born when you were. I was painted glass. I was born when you were. I was painted glass. Edgar took a shower. I helped myself to some coffee but ended up falling asleep before he got out of the shower anyway. At some point he gently nudged me awake and guided me to the bed, an offer which I graciously accepted. I don't think I have an actual memory of this. I think because I woke up in Edgar's bed that my brain decided that I must have gotten there by some means and made up a story that seemed appropriate. If Edgar didn't do it, how else could I have gotten there? Well, I suppose that the technology to move me does exist and has been the bane of my existence for some time now, but surely that would have roused me from my slumber. At some point, I woke slightly as Edgar got in the bed beside me. Did you get the alligator back from the store? I grumbled. Alligator? Edgar asked, confused. You don't get the points unless uh, you come back with the alligator. I explained. Mikey, are you awake or asleep? He asked. That sounds like dream logic. Both, I said. Well, are you feeling rested enough to tell me what you wanted to tell me? Edgar asked. I opened my eyes. Oh, there's not enough time before you have to go to work, I said. I'm back from work, Edgar replied. You slept all day? Oh, I said. The world was coming into focus around me. I guess I haven't been in a nice bed in a long time. Are you going to tell me how there were somehow 140 days between yesterday and today? He asked. No, I said. You're really not going to, he said, realizing that I was serious. Is that okay? I asked. It's not, he said and sighed. But I guess that comes with the territory. What did you need to tell me? Well, did you get the alligator back from the store? I repeated. No, seriously. He laughed in a way that indicated that this was the last chance I would have to riff before he started being more firm and demanding answers. Fine, I said. Uh, we should sit up, maybe? Edgar asked. Fine, I said. We sat up. I looked at the clock. Fuck, it's 8 p.m.? I asked. Yep, talk, he said. Okay, so, I have been to the future, I said. And I don't want to scare you, but I ran into some future iterations of myself there. Huh, you live long enough to have future iterations, he said, trailing off. I'm not teasing. That legitimately makes me feel less concerned. I've got ten years left in the tank, assuming that them being alive means that I live long enough to become them, I said. It has to mean that, right? he asked. You would think so, but I really try not to be optimistic anymore, I said. Anyway, the oldest one, Michael, told me something was going to happen. To you, I mean. Edgar went quiet. He froze in place. Is someone going to kill me? Well, everyone gets killed someday, Edgar. Nobody lives forever. I replied. He glared. The time for riffing was, in fact, over. 
I hastily got back on track. So Michael was like, See here, partner. There's a plot in Old Brush Valley bound to go belly up for them operators and whatnot, and Edgar's gonna get laid up in the hospital a few days because of it. But that hasn't happened yet. I think we can stop it. Edgar stared at me. Why did you do a southern accent just now? He asked. Oh, because Michael has a southern accent, I explained. But you're Michael, he replied. Yes'm, I said. So you're saying that in the future you will have a southern accent, he said. Guess so, I said. Why? You like it? Kind of, he admitted. Well, and I'm gonna have to work on it, I said. Did you say that I'm gonna be in the hospital, he asked. It's gonna be a real okay corral by the looks of it. During my captivity, I was coerced into sending a message for purposes of leading a rival group into a snafu. It purported to be a message to you, though I was told in confidence that it was a ruse and that your involvement was a fabrication. I learned in Riga that I was deceived and that you were severely injured in the ensuing melee. Since you have not received said message, I believe that we can subvert this mission and keep you out of the fray entirely. It should be as simple as ignoring it. And that's the whole tall tale, Pilgrim. You ain't got a message like that, have you? Uh, yeah, no, no, I haven't, he said. Captivity. Riga. Rival groups. Mikey. Are you seriously going to say these things and not explain yourself? Mm-hmm, I said. The subject eventually got dropped and we moved on to smaller talk. I would have to keep an eye out for the message. I wondered in what form it would be delivered and if it would be exactly as I had recorded it or if the Flinchites would change parts of it. But that was all stuff for a future Mike Walters to worry about. I was home. That night we got comfy on the couch and watched Dune. The David Lynch Dune. I had returned to a time where the Dennis Veneuf Dune hadn't come out yet. I had squandered my chance to see that Dune during my time in the future, and I'd have to wait all over again for it to come out. There's nothing wrong with the David Lynch Dune. Don't believe the discourse. It's not as good as Eraserhead, but it's a passable movie, in my opinion. It's fine. I felt much better having seen Edgar in the flesh. Making sure that he was safe was my main motivating factor for the past several months, and I could now confidently say that Edgar was in fact safe, and that we were developing a plan to keep him safe from the imminent danger heading his way. A danger which admittedly is largely my fault. But this is an enormous task to strike off the list, though it is far from the only one. I had a lot of time to myself in the few months prior, and I spent a lot of that time thinking about Old Brush Valley, specifically wondering what it is about that place. I had several questions that needed answering, but the morning after staying at Edgar's cabin, I had a starting place. Namely, the man around which the intrigue of Old Brush Valley energy and resources tended to revolve. The very first person that I met upon arriving there, the one, the only, Hunter Jeremiah Hartley. Okay, so not the one, the only, uh, the three, the many, Hunter Jeremiah Hartley. I left Edgar's house, went home, took a shower, changed clothes, and immediately set out to cabin 44C. Hunter answered the door. I didn't know that he would. The last time that we spoke, Hunter had told me that someone with my voice had led him into 357A, causing it to explode and leaving him with a scar across the side of his face. I winced when he opened the door and I saw the scar. 
In addition to the distinct possibility that an iteration of myself that I could not account for gave Hunter that scar, it was the same scar that Punish Hunter had. Punish Hunter, if you remember, being an iteration of Hunter that I shot and killed after he initiated an altercation. Or, more accurately, it's because I felt like doing it at the time. Seeing Hunter's much fresher scar reminded me that, if I understand things correctly, I was going to eventually drive him into a perpetual rage, and then kill him when that rage became too much for me to handle. Punish Hunter did look older than Innocent Hunter, but not by too many years. The things that would culminate into that moment would happen in the next few years, meaning Hunter only had a few more years to live because of me. I pushed all of that down as he let me into his cabin. You look different, he observed. Shaving a haircut? Eh, something like that, I replied. Well, it looks good on you, he said. I think he was trying to be polite. What brings you out this way? It's a long walk from your cabin. He was speaking to me as though nothing had ever happened between the two of us. I briefly entertained the idea that there might be four Hunters Jeremiah Hartley out here, and that this one somehow knew even less than Innocent Hunter, but there wasn't any evidence and that wouldn't explain the scar. I got to the point. So, Hunter, there's two of you. You know the other two of you? I asked. It felt almost rude to bring it up like I was committing some sort of faux pas. His tone changed. That's classified, Hunter said. You're tier one. Come on, Hunter, I said. You know that I already know about them. If I didn't know, then I couldn't bring them up. I just need to know when the last time you talked to them was. You don't need to know anything. You're tier one, he repeated. Look, Hunter, it's a small thing and it's really important to me. Did you talk to them yesterday or today? I can put on my puppy dog eyes if you want, I said. We... He gazed into the middle distance, deciding his word choice carefully. We meet daily to discuss work-related business. My big, wet, beautiful puppy dog eyes lit up. So if you meet with them daily, that means that you have met with them today? I asked. Both of them. That's what I want to know. I don't need to know, like, what you talked about or anything like that. Just were both of them there. I don't see how this interests you, but yes, both of them, he said. That's all I wanted to know, I said. Oh my god, Hunter, thank you, thank you, thank you. I owe you one. You owe me so much more than one, Hunter replied. True, true, uh, I'll just get out of your hair, I said. That's fine with me, he said. The politeness was gone. We said our goodbyes and then I left. I waited until I was out the door before I gave my enormous sigh of relief. <sighs> Punished Hunter was alive by the sounds of it. I was holding out a single sliver of hope that that was the case because at some point someone dropped an older hunter into my cabin. It wasn't someone moving the hunter that I killed because this hunter was even older than that so it doesn't seem like we've seen the end of Punished Hunter. One of them has to live to be even older. But Hunter died before the technology was stolen from Over, so whoever saved his life, it wasn't them. Could it be Wobegon? The Flinchites? Someone else? Who would benefit from this? I had no clue, but I did intend to find out. For the first time in a long time, I wasn't being commanded. Wobegon wasn't telling me what to do. The Flinchites weren't telling me what to do. The Arbiters weren't telling me what to do. Cannonball wasn't telling me what to do. Future versions of myself in Latvia with southern accents weren't telling me what to do. I had a moment of freedom. And a moment of paranoia. I knew that it wouldn't last forever. Someone had put me back in Old Brush Valley. 
Whoever it was put me there for a reason, and I don't think that it was to practice my southern accent, which I think is coming along nicely, and whatever that reason was would soon become clear. don't make fun of me for not knowing how to say Denis Villeneuve's name correctly. It's French. It's probably like all the letters are silent. It's like Denis Villeneuve. Is that close? Did I do it? Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.